Welcome, everybody. Here we are in the afternoon on Monday. Let's get started. Folks in the corner over here, I can see you're still standing. Let's get going. Um, my name is Alex Kantrowitz. I'm the host of Big Technology Podcast. Do we have any listeners in the room? Holy shit, that's awesome. Okay. Um, Ron, John, and I, we do a weekly show on Fridays, and I also do a weekly Wednesday show, and we talk all about the tech world. So we have three listeners here, which is amazing, and then hopefully by the end, We'll have a room full of listeners, but we got to earn it. So let me pass it over to Ranjan to tell you what we're going to be talking about today. All right. Welcome, everyone. My name is Ranjan Roy, and I'm the VP of strategy at Adore Me. How many people here have heard of Adore Me, the brand? All right. We got a smattering of hands. So we are the largest direct-to-consumer intimate apparel company in the United States. We were founded in 2011, and we were actually recently acquired by Victoria's Secret. Uh, the deal closed December 31st. And for us, we have taken a very interesting, probably counter-cyclical journey as a direct-to-consumer company over the last 13 years. Right now, direct-to-consumer is in a very weird space. I don't know, if it, have people seen headlines, DTC is dead or companies are collapsing? And so the way the conversation is kind of playing wait, wait, out right you got to pull them. Have, has anyone actually seen those headlines? Yeah, I see, I see some nods and laughs. I mean, and, uh, only one of us on stage has written that story. So. Yes, you'll see uh, that headline from last March. Um, so where is direct-to-consumer going to go? Right now, in the past, the original dream was online commerce, cutting out the middlemen, which we'll get into more specifically. But right now, a lot of online-only brands are building physical stores. They're going wholesale to Amazon. They're starting to be look like more traditional retailers, just as traditional retailers had started to go more online. So we're at this stage of a convergence where the future of retail, and I think is the coolest time ever to work in commerce of any sort, whether traditional, whether online. I think the future, the next decade of how we shop is getting defined right now. And I think it's a pretty interesting time. So if we go to the next slide, please. And by the way, as we transition, we should also say that we're going we're gonna to leave plenty of room for questions and answers. So if you have questions, feel free to sit on them, write them down, whatever. And we have a mic here, and we're going to make sure to speak with you. We don't want to just be lecturing at you. We want to have a conversation. So remember 2009, for anyone who's still working, who's had been working in tech, 2010, 2011, we were going through and it, this started to be about the present and the future of direct-to-consumer commerce. But as Alex and I started talking about this, we both got very nostalgic because both of us have worked in the tech space, media space, e-commerce space for the last 12, 13 years. And we you know, started naming brands from the past. Remember when this happened? Remember when this happened? And, and it was. It was an exciting time. Rent the Runway was one of the first ones, 2009, Warby Parker, Everlane, Dollar Shave Club, Adore Me. We were founded in 2011, right in the midst of everyone else. And it was like when our founder, he just graduated from Harvard Business School, sees you know, Victoria's Secret is this very old company that owns a huge percentage of the market share. This is the definition of disruptable. Blue Apron was going to change the way we eat at home. Casper would change the way we sleep. So like every industry that was out there was ready to be disrupted back then. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so this I want to spend just a minute or two on. Again, going back to what was that original promise? 
cut out the middleman. You have no physical retail store, so you don't pay rent there. You eliminate wholesale fees when you, sh you, know, you sell your products through Macy's or other department stores. You pay out a huge part of your margin to those companies. Um, so again, then the idea would be you cut out all of those middlemen and eliminate those expenses, you can get a customer a much better product at a better price. And it was a super, you know, beautiful, simple promise. Everlane, I still, does anyone remember their, or I think they still might do it, the transparent pricing Everlane has on their website? I feel they kind of took it to the most like visual extreme where they really outlined here are all the cost inputs associated with this product. And as you can see, it's like the true cost is $47. Everlane selling it for this, like really trying to open up their books on how they're changing the economics of commerce. So previously, why would companies not go direct to consumer? I mean, you'd, you'd have to go through a store. And what, what advantage did that give you? Yeah, so I mean, without the internet, without, you know, like, without the online access to open up markets to absolutely everybody, you know, traditional retail, the, so, so the biggest distinction I think is important for people to understand is, and it's kind of the third point there, the customer data, is direct to consumer, the promise is, I, the brand, have a relationship with the customer directly. When you shop at a physical retailer, they don't really know that well who you are, what you like, what you're interested in. So again, this idea is that relationship should have a tremendous amount of value versus you're talking in aggregate numbers like foot traffic, total sales, total customers that came in. And by the way, like one of the coolest things about this, at least from what I remember, is that at the time you had big retail, big box retail like Walmart, not only dominating the in-person retail world, but dictating to brands what they would produce, when they would produce it, how much they would produce, because the stores had that much control. And you ended up having a number of faceless brands effectively controlling retail. And you think about a Casper mattress, which we talked about, or you think about a Dormy products, or you think about you know, Dollar Shave Club, which we're about to get into. And it was sort of revolutionary to have a brand talking to you and saying, we care about you, as opposed to like these Walmart rolling back commercials, which say nothing at all. Yep. Yeah, no, no, exactly. It's like either you had a dedicated brand-owned store, but still, department stores dominated, Walmart dominated, and I think that's exactly it, and I think that's what made it so exciting. I mean, when we remember going back to that time, it was like, it felt revolutionary, and I think that's why so many really strong brands came out of that time. Yeah, I'm just getting the goosebumps thinking about the revolution because we did we were having a denigration of products. Yes, they were cheaper to buy, but they were shit. And like to have someone come to you and say we're going to make something quality and deliver it right to you at a right price was awesome. And you get to shop at home. <laughs> and you get to also shop cool. At home. All right, so next slide. All right, let's see if this plays. This is even right there at the end. Shave time, shave money. I mean this. When we started talking about it, again, prepping for this panel, we were like, what were one of those kind of like seminal moments in online commerce for you? And both of us remember this commercial. And then when you watch it again, it, it felt revolutionary at the time. Because not only 
this was YouTube virality that launched the brand. And this is just at a time when social media is picking up, YouTube virality, the idea that a brand could launch from a funny video was just something that no one ever could have dreamed of. And then their entire promise, the way, I mean, underneath all the kind of humor in the video, is he is laying out what the value of direct-to-consumer commerce is. It's cutting out the middleman, uh, saving you money. Everyone knows razors are kind of a racket, um, and they were taking on the most disruptible industry possible. By the way, has any, did anybody in the audience just see that commercial for the first time? For the first time. You'd never seen that before? What do you think? It's pretty freaking good. They should do it now. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but Ranjan, I think it would be interesting for you to just take a moment, because you mentioned it, and I think it's worth talking about how this was something that was positioned against the razor racket. <laughs> razor racket, racket, like you put it. I mean, I like that word, right? Because it did feel like a, a company like Gillette would add like a sixth razor, right? They would almost have more razor than handle and then charge you more money for it. So talk a little bit about, again, like, how it was able to position itself so well against the incumbent. Yeah, I think that is what, how every one of these brands at the time really did it. They, I mean, and that entire video is without calling out Gillette is calling out Gillette. And that was the way, and even for Adormi, the early headlines were Victoria's Secret killer and taking on Victoria's Secret. Um, Casper taking on the old, you know, traditional mattress industry that overcharges you. Everyone, it was such a beautiful time because it was like, it was such a perfect story. But why did the stodgy brands get so stodgy? Like, was it just lack of competition or like, how were they able to be so easily disruptable by something like a Dollar Shave Club? Well, I mean, I think we'll see whether they were disruptable. Okay, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. no, I mean, I, I think from a branding perspective and a customer offering perspective, it, a traditional retailer just did not get the online world. They were never going to make a video that went viral. Like, there would be a hundred layers of bureaucracy that would prevent them from doing so. The way people were shopping online, what was appealing to them, I think it's just the classic innovator's dilemma where... They did business in a different way, and they weren't ready for it. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Uh, next slide, please. All right, so we'll call this wave two. This is when things start to go just absolutely bananas. So 2016, Dollar Shave Club launched in 2011. 2016, acquired by Unilever for $1 billion. Huge acquisition. It's promised to change the face of Unilever, the way they operate, the way they think. Do, does anyone remember Jet.com? Did anyone use Jet.com? <laughs> okay, was anybody good. happy using Jet.com? <laughs> Okay, th maybe the marketing was better than the product, but yeah, go ahead. I, th I think I used it once. I remember they had like some pitch around the shipping, like if you waited longer, you could get cheaper products or something. It was interesting. Wait, wait, do you want to say what Jet.com oh, was? Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. So Jet.com, and again, reflective of what we'll call the wave two hype cycle, Jet.com, founded by Mark Lohr, who is the founder of diapers.com, I believe. Um, had sold to Amazon, left, and was ready, you know, going to revolutionize e-commerce, launched, raised a ton of money, never got a ton of traction, in which we saw by how many people nodded yes, they had heard of it, but no, had not used it. Um, but then Walmart managed to sell amidst all this hype. 
Walmart bought them for $3.3 billion with the idea that this would be kind of the beachhead into transforming Walmart to the digital age and the online age. And at the time, there was a number of other smaller acquisitions, like uh, Moose Jaw was an outdoor clothing retailer. I think Bonobos might have been around the same time. But basically, what you start seeing is some of the early brands get acquired by bigger brands to try to transform them amidst all the hype. Just a little anecdote about Jet.com and how they try to follow the Dollar Shave Club type of uh, plan. I was working at BuzzFeed at the time, and um, you know we had people on staff that knew how to go viral on the internet the way that it existed at the time. And Jet started poaching my colleagues because they thought that this idea of if we can go viral and we have a product will lead us to success just like the others. And so it was clearly like at a certain point, once people started to do it, it became a tried and true playbook that they were able to follow. And that's what would happen here. Man, I miss 2016. <laughs> there, there were fun moments. Good to times, it. good times. Um, Which half? Actually, Guilt Group, did people, did anyone here shop on that? All right, a couple. Um, like Guild Group was another one we didn't include in the first slide, but and I had not even remembered it because there were all these kind of like big names that had mild flameouts, and they were an early one. And I remember being in, in the New York tech scene, and they were supposed to be our first unicorn. They'd raised three hundred million dollars, and then by 2016, they were kind of an early sign that not everything was perfect under the hood because they had never managed to maintain or reach profitability during their lifetime. And then 2016, they were actually basically, uh, I mean, they were acquired for less money than they'd even raised by Hudson Bay Group. And what did Guilt do? Uh, Guilt Group was a the original like flash sale uh, like they would have, I think, it was like 24 to 48 hours. You would have, have access at 40% off to designer brands. And again, they were another example of promise where it was like, like using the internet to be able to sell in a new creative way. Uh, next slide, please. All right, I'm going to let Alex talk about his own uh, 2016 hype cycle moment. Okay, so I was obviously part of this machine, unwittingly, but um, it did seem like a mo in a moment, we would talk about all these ideas, right, that all of a sudden this stuff was taking over the world and it did seem like it was going to challenge incumbents and this was just a new way to buy. And anybody with a flashy YouTube video seemed like they were destined to success. And that is when I started to encounter the Dollar Beard Club. And the Dollar Beard Club very per uh, perceptively figured out that the Dollar Shave Club only covered a percentage of the market of men looking for grooming situations, and they left out the men with beards. And perhaps with a similarly viral video, they could market to men with beards to have beard oil and other grooming products, and lo and behold, they came out with their own video. Okay, so that's, that's there. <laughs> yes, uh, this guy is uh, the founder of Dollar Beard Club. His name is Chris. He sent me the video. I texted him. I said, what's your name? He told me that his name was uh, Chris, the mystery beard dude man. Um, and he, with a group of bearded bros in Long Beach, California, had decided that they were going to create this company. 
And uh, and I thought, okay, like if Dollar Shave Club was a billion dollar company or on its way to be a billion dollar company, maybe Dollar Beard Club could be uh, could be that type of company just for for bearded guys. And also, they were great characters, so they were they really made for a perfect BuzzFeed story. So yeah, I went down there and, and got a look at their operation. They opened their books, and to me, it seemed like you know this was definitely going to be something that. Um, was going to work for basically every product category, and I wrote about it. And you know, they were making millions of dollars, and their advertising was amazing. Like as you see in the photo, they have legendary bearded figures standing together with them. Not only is there Chris the Mystery Beard Dude, but there's legendary bearded man Santa Claus and Abraham Lincoln, and other legendary mem- uh, members of our historical past. And I guess in present and future, if you count Santa. <laughs> uh, next slide, please. All right, so. Everything is great. Everyone is happy. Unilever's buying Dollar Shave Club. Jet is being bought by Walmart. At the same time, we start to see something else happen. A lot more money being raised. And again, Alex knows the zero interest rate world that we existed in is uh, something I think about a lot. And I think this was very reflective of what was happening. I mean, you look at those numbers, and I will point out, with the Dormy, we did take a slightly different path. Rent the Runway raised $526 million. Warby Parker, 535 Everyone. And again, Adormi, the last time we actually raised capital was in 2015, $36 million in our entire life. And it was a very, very specific, it was a strategic decision. But when money was so easy, what you start starting to happen is with money comes expectations. And what we really start seeing is what was a promise? What was saying that, you know, the simple way we're going to make a better product at a better price, change the way marketing is done by maybe having a viral video. Every company that's raising this much money now has the expectation that they have to transform everything, reach millions and tens of millions of new customers to try to actually come into these valuations. So if you're at Blue Apron and you raise $422 million, but how many meal kits do you think you have to sell to justify that type of valuation? It's a consulting interview. <laughs> well, if you needed to get to the moon with Blue Apron containers, how could you do it? Um, I mean, and, a lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, a lot. A good amount. Um, and, and Blue Apron is like, like the, the, the Blue Apron was kind of the poster child of cool, cool idea. I used it a few times. I remember, actually, we'll go with the poll again. How many people have used Blue Apron? How many of you enjoyed the food? That's probably what happened. <laughs> no, I mean, and it, it wasn't bad, but again, the idea is like, Everyone is going it to... Was a, it was a meal kit company, for those who don't know Blue Apron. Oh, yeah, sorry. We get so caught up in this yeah, stuff. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, Blue Apron, again, in theory, revolutionary. Like, you, they send you the exact amount of ingredients at home. It inspires you to buy more, like, to learn new recipes, eat at home, eat healthier, enjoy cooking. It's for people, I mean, ideally, who don't love to cook, but want to learn to cook. And... Uh, yeah, it made sense, and there probably was a good market for it. There, But not everyone in the United States and then the world would eat in this way, but the expectation essentially became they would have to. And, and some of these companies actually did get good exits for their found, for their investors. I mean, if you look at Dollar Shave Club, at $165 million, you sell for a billion dollars. Everyone's pretty happy with that return. But the thing is, they kept getting more and more funding. And maybe it's worth taking just 60 seconds to talk about 
why these companies were getting so much money with the rate being zero. Like, what, what were the mechanics in the financial market that ended up pushing all this money to these companies that would end up setting these expectations on them? Yep, yep. So, ZERP or zero interest rate policy, the, what, the way it affected, especially even the direct to consumer commerce industry, is traditionally, you know, investors, when treasuries are yielding 4%, 5%, you'll put money in safer assets, but when rates were very low or zero, they have to start investing in riskier things. So suddenly a pension fund who never would have invested in a meal kit service is investing in a meal kit service, either directly or indirectly. Investors who never would have imagined to invest in these type of companies start doing it, but also the same way that we've been talking about, it's a great story. It's a great investor story. Like in 2016, 2017, everyone really believed that Unilever could be disrupted. Like they bought Dollar Shave Club almost defensively. The idea that you had already started to see some traditional multi-billions, tens of billions of dollar companies, you know, declining. So the idea was disruption was going to happen. It was going to come quick and this was an area that it was good to put your money in. And all these companies invested their money in Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> but they're it's okay now. The they're okay now. Yeah. No, but that actually is true. This probably this would it's be a concentrated uh, example of it. Um, next slide, please. So another thing that happens around this time, and th this is relevant both from like a kind of comedic aesthetic perspective, but also there's a real business issue that's rising at this time. Um, all, a lot of these brands start to look the same. Um, I don't know how many of you have shop different kind of like of the either poster DTC children or their Instagram copy style <laughs> ripoffs, but, but like in 2017 to 2021, a lot of the leading brands, everyone, the sans serif font, the like pan, whatever the Pantone color of the year, they'll try to push. Everyone starts to kind of converge and look very similar, but it makes sense because everyone is underneath, everyone is fighting over the same customers. And this is one thing we'll definitely start to see more of is that the type of customer and what the potential market for any one of these products is, is limited or more limited than initially thought. So again, rent the runway dress rentals in the New York and LA markets blows up and is amazing as a service. Everyone I know uses it, um, Blue Apron, meal kits, other things. This concentration of customers means that one, the overall market size is limited, but two, everyone is having to go over the same after the same customers, which changes the entire economics of how you acquire customers. When you're all bidding and fighting over the same customers, it becomes kind of a problem. And then the last part, where, which makes this very problematic, is this allows the rise of every Instagram copycat brand. The idea that you take a Shopify website, throw up a brand, I mean, now with generative AI, I don't even wanna talk about how like quickly this could probably be done. Um, buy some Instagram ads. The average consumer, like if you are slightly familiar with the Neverlane, you might not know the difference when it's brand X or Y that was created with like a couple of hundred K in seed funding and they are on an equal footing as the DTC giant in this case. So everyone, like what seemed like a kind of surface level aesthetic joke actually had really 
big business implications. And this is a moment where life is, becomes very good for Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook because yeah. all of these companies are finding distribution through Instagram next to those brands or the brand set up. They don't have any organic reach, so they're pushing the advertising. And it starts to work for everybody. Facebook's making a lot of money, and the brands are spending low enough uh, CPMs, like uh, they're buying eyeballs for cheap enough that the equation makes sense, and we're going to come back to that, I think, shortly. Yep, yep. Next slide, please. So this is the adore me part where I'll tell you what we were doing for those four years. Um, we took a very different approach, and this was – and and. Our founders are mostly European, and I still, as an American, I think like part of what kept them conservative was almost that background of not being as caught up in the hype cycle. But one of the first decisions we made was to build our own fulfillment center, and this is 2017, and build in automation around it. And this was actually a very, very risky thing at the time, but we actually had, a, as we scaled from 2013 to 2016, we had a lot of problems with fulfillment and using uh, third-party logistics providers. So the decision was made and we did it. What that did was that opened up a whole new way of doing business. So we have something called Home Try-On. It's, kind of, it's like a Stitch Fix type service. You get sent four, six, eight items, keep what you want, send the rest back. That is an incredibly complex logistical challenge to do that. And we were able to do that because we had already built our own warehouse and fulfillment center and brought in automation into it, that we were able to launch this entirely new business. And a lot of actually what we do, out of 500 employees, 150 are engineers. It's a very tech-heavy company. And we realized, like, again, in this world, to compete with Instagram copycat brands that can just, uh, our CEO calls them plug-and-play brands, you had to do something different. Um, and then at the same time, we actually started pushing on sustainability a good amount, and we actually became a certified B Corp last year, and we're the first lingerie brand in the U.S. to become one. So it really was these strategic decisions during this time, and it was tough. It was very hard to not get caught up in the hype cycle. Openly asked all the time, why did you raise so little? Like almost like sneered or mocking um, as to why you raise so little. But but again, for us, we never. One thing that also allowed us to not get completely caught up was uh, our customers are distributed throughout the entire United States, middle to upper middle income. We're a pl proudly mass market and affordable brand. So it's the opposite of what a lot of these kind of like very trendy direct to consumer brands their customer base. And that always kind of made us look elsewhere, think outside, just be a little bit different. And, and again, like given what we'll get to around the present, it was, a, it was a good decision for us. So would you say that you're like a fairly unique company in building your own fulfillment center? I mean, I remember when I wrote about the Dollar Beard Club, I visited a third-party logistics company that was stocking and shipping out their products. So a, do, you, do you think you were, you were fairly differentiated in that way? And also, I'm very curious about the funding part of it. So can you talk a little bit about what disadvantages that you had and what advantages some of the bigger companies had by having more money? And then also, what advantages did you have by uh, uh, having less money that they did not? Yep. So I don't know if this is a disadvantage or an advantage, but we, this entire time, are so intensely cost-disciplined. Like, I'm going to have to, like, 
come up with some ROI for speaking here to our CEO or CMO probably. So, but, but it is, it's uh, like we, everything you do forever because we had raised less money. So it forced us to be incredibly disciplined about everything, especially with marketing. It's, it's something that, you know, around performance marketing, when costs start going up, you know, we will potentially avoid it or we decide we have to get smarter about it. So I think it made us operationally better as a company and more disciplined. Certainly disadvantages, uh, two of our biggest competitors, Kim Kardashian Skims raised 350 million, I believe. Savage Fenty, Rihanna's brand uh, raised some two, 300 million. So for us, acquisition costs, when these companies are flooded with money, they're bidding on the same terms and you know like it definitely it, it it can be a little challenging or scary but but i think it also reminds us we've seen these cycles now the blue aprons in the first one the caspers in the first one i and i honestly have come out of this whole era too much money does not make for a good business like at every level the way you operate the kind of things you do the the chances you take it just does not make for a long-term sustainable business. Can I also share a theory that Kim Kardashian and Rihanna initially commanded that much money because the funders thought there might be organic reach that they can get through these massive celebrities, highly followed accounts. But that was ultimately a miscalculation because eventually if you wanted to get reach on Instagram, you had to pay for it. Does that, that play into it? Wait, wait, so this actually could get into a whole other theory right now. So, <laughs> all right, I'm thinking something. So, so one thing that's been frustrating for us is it's 100% they raise that money because acquisition is becoming more challenging. So if you have built in Kim Kardashian's following or, I mean, it's funny, even from like a press perspective, Rihanna pregnant at the Super Bowl, there is a million articles that will then also cite Savage Fenty, her intimate brand. I mean, she kind of did like a little commercial at the Super Bowl for those who saw for her makeup. Um, so she doesn't. She's brilliant at it. And it's funny because, but in their economics, when they're calculating their customer acquisition cost, that is not involved because it's not an expense. So it's a completely different economic model than ours. What's interesting, though, that I was just thinking about is now with Instagram changing its algorithm to be non-follower based, TikTok is very different as well that built-in following is not going to be as valuable. And I mean, when Instagram first kind of said they're going to go non-follower-based and focus on reels, I think it was Khloe Kardashian or maybe it was Kim that made a big deal about it and said, you know, like, we're going to leave the platform. Yeah, I was just sitting with uh, Kevin Sistrom, the Instagram founder, yesterday, and he was telling me that one of his laments is that we don't get our content based off of what's good. We get our content based off of who we follow. I'm like, bro, you built that system. But anyway, the, <laughs> like, full conversation is going to be on Big Technology Podcast next Wednesday. So in case you're interested. Um, yeah, I mean, it is actually, this is, this is a good, as we're talking here, this is coming to light in my mind right now. It is going to change marketing completely. And it, it almost, in a way, puts non-celebrity brands like ourselves in a better position. Uh, next slide, please. All right. I'm going to let Alex... Talk about the perils. This is the present day. So, you know, I, I, I guess, I mean, clearly I was part of this, this hype cycle, um, you know, writing about Dollar Beard Club. Of course, there were much worse perpetrators. But 
at a certain point, what happened was the direct-to-consumer companies, companies like Dollar Shave Club and Casper, and and then you had celebrity brands like Rihanna's and Kim Kardashian's, they became literally the hottest tech companies in the world. And there was this narrative around them, like, there's no beating these companies. Dollar Shave Club is going to attack Unilever, get acquired by a billion. And without that, who knows, maybe Dollar Shave would have been, you know, the company that took, took over the world. And it was, I guess, around this time last year, there was, you know, we obviously go through the pandemic. People are buying at home. And all of a sudden, the sort of floor drops out for many of these companies. Um, we're going to get to a slide looking at their stock market valuations in a minute, but like it's a whole lot of red. And there's, there's a number of different, uh, there's a number of different factors behind it. Um, and I think, why don't we play the CNBC clip? So I'm actually here in Austin last year sitting in my hotel room and I had written this story about, oh, you can see it in the, in the top corner that the direct to consumer crisis is slamming into reality. We had a marketer uh, who, who told me that it was a reckoning for this industry. So um, anyway, let's play the clip and then we can go through some of the reasons why, um, you know, it all hit the fan for DDC. So I guess our, our discussion today is called, is D2C dead? And now we're going to get to sort of the meat of that talk. By the way, how many people here work for D2C companies or in the D2C industry? Okay, so it's kind of an away game for me. Um, but we, let, why don't we go through a little bit of the reasons why uh, this, this has become a difficult time for them. Um, and I think we should really start with advertising. So in the beginning, when all these brands were on Instagram uh, and Facebook, they had uh, fairly low costs because they were, they were just ramping up. This wasn't a tried and true model. Next thing you know, and Ranjan is now competing against Kim Kardashian and Rihanna, his cost to advertise inside of these social platforms goes up. And then all of a sudden, that very, or maybe very or just barely profitable calculation of we don't have a showroom, but we're going to get to people on Facebook, that all of a sudden becomes an equation that's no longer sustainable. And I think Ranjan has some interesting perspective talking about how this customer acquisition cost becomes the new rent for these companies. Yeah, and we'll have a quote in just a bit, but this idea, again, saving on rent makes so much sense. When we're back to the 2011 promise of DTC, you're going to save on rent, you're going to save on wholesale. Suddenly, there's new types of rent. Facebook acquisition is effectively a rent. Uh, logistics and returns is a rent. I mean, it, so return rates, and this is something that we have been obsessed with early on, and our return rate is one-tenth the industry average. The industry average is like, it can be higher than 30% on e for e-commerce. There's companies that are public that have over a 50% return rate. So suddenly the economics don't make as much sense when you're having to process that many returns, when you're having to actually take into account all of these different returns. And, and suddenly you start to see all these things that were advantages maybe are not advantages and why there is an explanation for why a lot of these companies never made money. Yeah, I mean, I had a, a one advertiser who talked about how their uh, cost to advertise on Facebook went from $6 to reach 1,000 people to 18 and you just can't make those economics worth and I, uh, work. And I'll, I'll add another thing, which is that at this time is when Apple does its ad tracking yep. transparency yep. move, which has which does not, if people opt out, does not allow companies to track them once they leave an app. If you're on Facebook and you can't see whether people are buying when you have your ad, 
you're screwed because you don't know where to optimize. So that's another headwind that they hit. And then lastly, um, the, the pandemic, and I think this has sort of been a under, unless you work in the industry, it's something that's not very sexy, so you don't hear about it a lot, but shipping costs, which I mentioned in the CNBC clip, just go through the roof. And uh, yeah, I have a, um, a guy that I know who's in shipping. He's not like a source. He's just a, you know, a guy I know in shipping. And he said that it cost them $2,000 per container to bring it in from China before the pandemic. And he looked at me and he goes, Alex, we're starting to make $16,000, dollars per you know per container and that's going to lead to uh the prices that you pay in store and for whatever you're buying to go up tremendously because the u.s economy is so reliant on china for our goods and then lo and behold we're now in the middle of an inflation crisis and supply chain has been a large part of that so that's another thing because if you're selling lingerie and you now have to spend so do you guys work with do you guys import from china uh, some. Yeah, so you're going to be hit from hit by this cost as well. Um, and so now all of a sudden, your margins are even further compressed because of this, and it becomes a, ser- a serious issue. Yeah, yeah. No, no, this is something that every company has been getting hit from any number of directions. And, and everything, again, all the dream, it changed. Next slide. Um, this kind of, uh, this quote, uh, there's a report, uh, Simeon Siegel from BMO Capital Markets. It's again, over a decade ago when e-commerce began its meaningful ascent, the world expected the channel to pose a boon to retail margins. There was no rent after all. That was until it became clear that e-commerce costs were variable. And I think that is the most important part. Rent is essentially a fixed cost. E-commerce costs, acquisition costs, shipping costs, logistics costs can be variable, and that's why the like companies are much, much more susceptible to change. And then the you know e-commerce companies, the DTC companies themselves, are become can become disrupted. Uh, next slide. This is the red slide. This is. <laughs> Every company, and this was crazy for us because even Figs, when they went public, Figs was the only profitable company out of the kind of like DTC poster children IPO class of 2021, early 2022. And even they're down, I think, yeah, it's uh, 80-ish percent. Stocks down 95, Allbirds down 95%. Like these stocks, once they went public and their books were opened up, it really changed how everyone looked at the sector because suddenly these numbers were out there in the open. Before, when it was private, everyone could at least try to pretend that maybe the business, it's working well, and then suddenly everyone's realizing it's not. And by the way, aren't they also, like the same factor that caused them to get that inflated amount of funding, which was increased rates, uh, or zero interest rate policy, now is slamming them because it gave them these expectations and they, they will go public. They're trying to live up to them. And then all of us, and, and they, because they're viewed as tech companies, their valuations are high. Then the rate goes up. And now all of a sudden, their inability to prove profitability, their shrinking margins becomes penalized way more than it would. So it's almost this double whammy from the Fed where they inflate the expectations. They become these companies that probably should be smaller than they are. And now they're punished for being the size that they are. On the yeah, public market. And, and the thing that's tough is 
like sweet green i'm a happy customer I, you go there sometimes i was you? i ate sweet green lunch yesterday so i guess that makes me a user of the sweet green platform <laughs> yeah. well and how he said it that was kind of the problem is sweet green tried to be valued as a technology company they have incredible user experience in their app everything what great website it, it's it, a salad company. It's a salad company. Allbirds is a shoe company. And we, we get, we have a lot of proprietary technology. We consider ourselves, you know, having a strong tech foundation, but we are an apparel retailer and we own that and we know that and we understand it. But that, that really was the expectations become so inflated and high. And you see how that creates operational missteps. Again, in Allbirds, very quickly had to expand to all different categories. And then they actually, I think, they're cutting back on apparel already. And, you know, everyone, you have to introduce new products, new categories, new lines, new somewhere to find the growth. Or you have to find new customers. But a lot of these products, and again, I like Sweet Green, the total addressable market for an $18 lunch salad is not necessarily uh, universal, let's say. Um, so, so I think, yeah, that inflated expectations, you saw it playing out in so many different ways for how it actually made companies operate in not the optimal way. So explain this to me, because this is something I definitely don't understand. Why were these companies so eager to lean into this idea that they were tech companies? I mean, clearly you guys said, okay, we're an apparel company, but if I'm running a salad company... I'm not saying I'm a platform because ultimately it's going to cause these expectations and leave me to vulnerability that I'm just not going to be able to sustain. If the difference between uh, raising two or three hundred million dollars or five million dollars, are you a tech company then? Yes, but (laughs) (laughs) but there's going to cause problems eventually. So, I mean, like obviously WeWork is the most famous tech company, but that that was a a tech company. Come on. Um, elevated the world's consciousness. It did. It's not easy. Technology. It was not a real estate company. Um, but I mean, Adam Newman certainly came out okay. So maybe that he's, was the right decision. He's worth more than WeWork itself right now. Yeah, he is worth much more than WeWork actually. Adam WeWork. Newman was. He was a technology company. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it, this is where it's a tough thing to resist, right? It's really, especially. I mean, like one thing I've thought about is again, our founders being European different mindset, not as caught up. The Bay Area versus even New York. I think New York might even be a little more conservative in some ways around venture capital versus if you're in the Bay Area. But if you see everyone else around you doing it and it feels like the path to instant riches, obviously you're going to go that way. I mean, it's very hard not to, let's say. Well, congrats for resisting it. Yeah, we're we're happy now. We're happy now. Uh, Next slide. All right, so... To make sure we have time for questions, um, actually, uh, maybe let's let's get to the questions, and then we'll wrap up by, uh, at least, I'm very optimistic right now about uh, the world of retail and direct-to-consumer commerce um, going forward, so we can wrap up with that, but let's start with some questions. So if you have questions, we have a mic here, and it's on, so we're happy to take them, and uh or and shout if, from your chair. And if you either. don't, then I'll unfortunately have to keep <laughs> keep talking. <laughs> hey, thanks, guys. Uh, I was curious your thought on D2C pharma companies think Row, Him, Cerebral before all the shit, especially the economic <laughs> side. Before all the shit is, uh, the, <laughs> I think, the phrase for all DTC. I mean, this is an interesting one. Cerebral, for those who don't know, 
well, I think it's like Adderall prescriptions, or it's definitely, uh, and they really leaned in heavily during the pandemic. And I think it was like one small tweak in a law that allowed them during the pandemic for telemedicine purposes. And again, like in some ways, it's kind of like a beautiful part of capitalism. You know, like something opens up and you see these companies going in very aggressively, but in others, it's like, it's so, pharmaceuticals is such a touchy, difficult subject because when you can, you know, like micro-target with advertisements, when you can grow rapidly, if you raise a lot of money like hims and hers have, and you have to grow rapidly, but you're selling a pharmaceutical product, it's definitely, it's a dicey area, I would say. Uh, who asked that question again? Okay, so did you listen to the Wall Street Journal? They had a, a podcast about one of these. That was amazing, right? So that was another, I mean, don't listen to big technology instead, but it was a really great <laughs> series talking about how once you bring down the walls and you allow this tele, um, tele, telehealth to go on, you can end up, have, you, you lose the friction that is sort of a feature of the medical system sometimes. And what happened was they ended up just being prescri prescribing Adderall and whatever it was and actually like getting on doctors' cases if they weren't prescribing enough. And that's sort of where it comes to, you know, it's sort of like the perfect concoction. High expectations and, you know, big High valuations. You raised yeah, a lot of money. Aggressive growth the, plans. Yeah, Silicon Valley growth mentality. Next thing you know, you're ruining people's lives. Um, so I wondered if you guys have any thoughts about how this trend also has applied to insure tech industry when I, I work for a big insurance company. And, you know, we saw shortly after this boom, we saw the rise of D2C insurance brands of Root, Lemonade, Ladder, Plaid, Bestow, Hippo, go on and on and on. It seems like VCs thought your industry was ripe for disruption. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's fair. Um, so I just wondered how, uh, kind, of, kind of your thoughts on how maybe this has creeped in and if I felt like they were a little bit behind the surge. So do you think they'll learn from what they're seeing here? And do we see any indications of that changing? I mean, I think whether InsureTech or FinTech, clearly this past weekend, for those who have not been following the Silicon Valley Bank drama, I think traditional bigger financial institutions are coming out looking a lot more attractive. I think, uh, it, it, and whether it's, this disruption promise with retail almost was very simple, because it's like, it's clothing, it's shoes, it's stuff that is not gonna make, you know, like ruin lives or whatever, versus if it's pharmaceuticals, even insurance, if, it, if it's not done properly or well, it really, oh, sorry, it really can be highly problematic. But by the same token, you know, like Lemonade was a perfect one. I think their stock would probably reflect similar to those graphs. But they were another SoftBank funded, raised a ton of money, essentially from what I understand, had a very nice UX and skin over what's just a traditional uh, insurance product. But yeah, I think it, it's definitely similarly reflective as a lot of what's happened here. How much does your company think about the threat from D to C? I mean, I guess you're here, so... But I'm curious. I'm an innovation okay. Okay. For those who didn't hear, she's in the innovation department of her company, and it's enough of a threat that they're really focused on it, which is interesting. So, thank you for sharing. Hey guys, uh, I was wondering, what do you think about D2C created by influencers? 
In Brazil, it's huge right now. A, a bunch of companies are trying to partner with creators and influencers. Do you think they're all following that Kim Kardashian, Rihanna stuff? Yeah, yeah. So, so influencer marketing is a huge part of our overall strategy. And actually, it like so we had already had fairly organic people would have be interested. We would you know like partner with big fans of the brand. We had one celebrity partnership in 2021 with BB Rexa. It was like our one and only attempt, which who at the time did not have her number one hit. Uh, and uh, like most of our customers didn't know who she was at the time. Um, but in micro influencers is something that we've done a lot of work in. And like for us, that's kind of our battle against Kim and Rihanna is like, we're gonna take our hundreds or thousands of our genuine fans with thousands, maybe tens of thousands of followers and work with them as closely to try to actually, you know, build a community with them. So, so it's a big thing. And I think like it is, it's a, it's a very different way of approaching marketing than just a generic acquisition on Facebook. But I mean, not, not, not like using them for marketing, but creating a D2C company for like an influencer oh, D2C. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. We, it's been kind of like in our, we have something called the X team, copied from Google, but uh, so where it's always like new ideas being incubated and it's a team of five engineers. And I remember like one of them had the dream of like, because because we own our own fulfillment center, could we either buy or partner or create our own small manufacturing um, thing? But yeah, no, we, we haven't, it's a complex thing, especially intimate apparel is even more difficult because getting the fit, getting the comfort, sizing everything down is really complex. If it's like t-shirts or something like that, I think it could be more interesting. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Um, my question, and this might get to what you're getting to with the future, but I would love to get your thoughts on um, what I think we're seeing. The brands that have survived, are, I'm seeing them shift to do more brand advertising rather than performance, especially in light of what we've seen change on the platform. So even like a Skims, who yes, has a celebrity, but starting to do out of home and some more traditional tactics. So I'm curious how Adormi is facing that and then what the larger um, integrated marketing mix is looking like for DTC companies as they try to kind of exist in this new digital ecosystem. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And did, did you see the Skims swim out of home all over Austin. I definitely was walking around and caught that. Um, so we have been doing a lot more out of home and it's tough for us because we are so numbers driven that like when you are, you know, you do a lot, invest a lot into, Valentine's Day is our biggest time of year. When we did a big, it was in seven different cities, like big Vegas billboards. And then, you know, our VP of branding and I have to tried to outline a concrete, tangible ROI to our CMO and CEO. And we're like, well, this is, you know, we can get estimated foot traffic or something. Um, so it's tough. It's like a cultural shift, but we, we know we have to do it. We know, and I think every DTC brand that was more performance-driven like ourselves, it's part of it. So we're, change, we're trying to work on it. Yeah, we definitely want to leave time for the future. So... Oh, yeah. Why don't we just take these two questions? You guys can ask them both, and then we'll cut off questions and then wrap. Sure. Um, I mean, just thinking about the overall cost of building your technology, logistics centers, have you ever thought about only doing marketplaces on its own uh, instead of you know, having marketplaces do the distribution and the technology side of it? 
Uh, does the economics really match up to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Have we thought about doing marketplaces because we already have the fulfillment? Yes, definitely. And I can tell you, in 2021, early, our getting caught in the hype cycle was not raising a ton of money, but we were making a lot of money. We had more cash on the balance sheet than ever, and everyone with an idea could pursue it. So <laughs> we had uh, some experiments with marketplaces as well, even when we were just talking about like trying to come up with new influencer product creation. So, but marketplaces, honestly, the toughest part, it's not a technology challenge. It's getting the buyers and sellers, it's getting the audience to there, creating a brand. And we did not, we created a couple experiments with marketplaces not using the Adormi brand because we did not want to give any impression that Adormi products were not made and designed by us. And then it was, we couldn't get people to the website, like, I mean, very simply, without spending too much to acquire them. Okay, let's get the last question and then we'll wrap. Nice. My question kind of aligns with that and maybe segues into your future question, but do either of you foresee a future in which DTC will be a little bit more circular in nature, right, where uh, traditional retailers and whatnot kind of mitigate a lot of, a lot of the challenges that y'all were mentioning? That is the perfect lead-in to I, my future vision. <laughs> I, I love those questions. Love, like, yeah. That was not a setup. That was yeah. not a setup. We planted them. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that idea of whether it's circular, not in the like, sustainability sense, but just like in terms of, to me, the most interesting thing that's happening right now is direct consumer, the original vision that we outlined and we, that we all believed was if you build that individual relationship with the customer, it allows you to do more things and serve them in a better way it got conflated with buying things online, which I don't think actually gives it enough credit as a term. I think traditional retailers, like when you own physical stores, you did not invest properly in knowing who your customers were, but already with technology, we've been seeing a lot more of that. Even kind of like a, a loyalty credit card was like the early traditional retail way of trying to understand your customer. But in reality, all that data was generally aggregated or not really used at trying to serve a customer. And for us, even we looked at our home try-on service. It was a completely new business model for us. It was a different way to serve customers based on data we had and how we predict products for them and how we, we knew that demand was there. And I think the opportunity right now is everyone, whether you're a traditional retailer or an online first company, is building that relationship with the consumer. And this is honestly why we're all, 12 years ago, had the headline Victoria's Secret Killer. And this is why we actually very happily merged with them and were acquired by them. Whereas we have this kind of shared vision right now where, I mean, they have... 3,500 stores, I think. They have like, I mean, they are one of the biggest physical retailers in the world. And now we have this opportunity to work with them to try to create this way of them knowing their individual customers. And that can open up any number of new ways and ideas and things like in ways to serve them. And I think honestly, like Amazon, you know, Amazon should have done this. 
Amazon had the online relationships, the service of fulfillment, they should have, but I think like instead with the way they approached their marketplace, it just opened the door for everyone else now. And I think like, I don't know, like for me at least Amazon, I don't go to for a strong brand of product. I do it when I need some generic piece of like metal or plastic for something, um, or I need something in two days or one day. Um, so I, I really am excited because I think like the next, I mean, we, how we started this, this is a moment where everything is wide open. Everything, the way we shop can actually be changed versus, you know, the 2011 promise where it was, you know, DTC is going to change everything and then it just ended up with plug and play brands and Facebook ads. This is a moment we're going to figure out how do we take offline retail and online retail and actually build a genuine like direct to consumer vision? Yeah, and I'll leave with a couple of optimistic thoughts um, to go against the grain of my position so far. I mean, there's been some things that have changed since I wrote that story. First of all, Facebook ads are starting to work a lot better than they did before Apple's changes. And I think anyone here who's placing ads in the room will probably have seen the changes, although they're not back to where they were. Um, and then, of course, you see the prices have come down because more people have tried to go elsewhere. Or they can't get that money. So that's become an interesting channel for people. Those shipping costs that I talked about, the $18,000 per container, has now gone almost all the way back to its pre-pandemic $2,000 or so. So that's normalized, which has made life a lot better for D2C companies. And so, and I also think, you know, this is definitely a tough moment in the economy. We're all going through it, right? A bunch of startups probably, you know, thought they weren't going to be able to make it through this week, um, you know, over the weekend. So, you know, obviously it's a trying moment, but it's also a moment where we're going to see some of this froth kind of come out of the market and strong companies like Adormi are going to end up making it through. And then they'll probably lead the way for others to follow like an actually sustainable path versus like what was going on before, which was D2C on drugs. I appreciate that optimism because, fun fact, in a leadership meeting after Alex's story was published to CNBC, uh, we had the headline in a deck from our CEO about like all the like shakeout happening in the industry, that the reckoning was coming, and I'm just sitting there and we're friends from before, and I'm like, oh boy, oh boy. So now you're optimistic at least. Well, more than I was, but um, you guys still have work to do. All right, all right, fine. All right, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. We'll wrap up. Yeah. Appreciate everyone coming here. Thank you, thank you. And I just want to say that Ranjan and I talk on Big Technology Podcast every Friday. Um, So if you want to give it a shot, it's Big Technology Podcast and every podcast app. Silicon Valley Bank episode coming up this week. Ranjan and I on Friday. Kevin Sistrom next Wednesday, Big Technology Podcast. Thank you all. You've been an amazing audience. Thank you.